Oops. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 37 through 47 this morning. 37 through 47, Acts chapter 2. You know, Luke wrote this, this book of the Bible to record what's going on in the first church, the very first church, and how it grew and expanded and eventually reaches the ends of the earth at that point in time. Um, and last week we were covered the whole sermon that Peter preached after the Holy Spirit came. He preached a mighty sermon, a sermon full of very clear details and vibrant scriptures, proving that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, we believe that Luke didn't capture every word Peter said. I mean, it's just hard, would be hard to do that. But he did catch the essence of it. And today we're going to see what happened and how God used that sermon for some amazing things that went on. So let me read this passage to you, verses 37 through 47, and then we'll, we'll delve into it. When they heard this, the sermon... When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for this report. I thank you for giving us the results of Peter, Peter's sermon here. But I thank you mostly because you did it. You did it. You came down and you saved these 3,000 and even more as time went on. And, and now today we have millions and even billions of people who have confessed and professed faith in Christ. So we thank you for this story. Now help us, Father, to understand how you work in the saving of souls and for what purpose. That's our call. That's our need this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as you can see, God clearly uses Peter's sermon to convict these devout Jews. These devout Jews who were in town visiting for the Pentecost festival. Convict them of their sins. And then he would use them to change the world right there. And so that's what God regenerates our souls for. He regenerates the souls to become members of the body of Christ, the church, to change the world. God saves us to use us. 
And we, have to, we really have to accept that. Sometimes we, we kind of are happy just sitting on our salvation and not doing anything. But God saves us to use us. So what happens to a person when God saves their soul? What happens in a person when their soul believes in Jesus Christ? Well, I want you to see from this passage this morning two monumental events that occur in the souls of these devout Jews, the, this crowd. Two monumental events that they experience. And the truth is, this is true for all believers, not just for this group right here, but for all believers. This will happen to you if you trust Christ. First of all, God imparts spiritual life to us. God's the one who gives us the new spiritual life. See what he does here in, in verses 37 through 41 again. After the sermon, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? It's a sincere plea. And Peter replied, it's kind of a simple reply. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. Wow, that's incredible. So what we see here in, in, in the phrase where, where Peter's, Peter says, as many as the Lord our God will call, we see that it's God's activity that does this. So it, regeneration is when God moves in your heart and changes your heart, makes your heart ready to believe and trust him. So regeneration always leads to conversion, which is faith and repentance. God moves, we hear, and we respond. I'm going to kind of explain that a little bit. So after hearing Peter's words, the truth of Jesus' death, his resurrection, what, what their part was in it, <laughs> they, they, they respond. They're convicted. They realize that they have messed up. They've blown it. They've sinned the most, the most heinous sin in God's eyes, which was killing his son. And they respond. They were pierced to the heart. Now, this word pierced in the Greek does not mean the same thing as piercing Jesus' side with a spear. It's a different word. It actually carries a, a note of stress, mental anguish, emotional distress over something that has happened, that you want to make right, that you want to change, that you want to fix, which is exactly what happens in conviction. Conviction only happens when the Spirit tells us and, and clearly gets in our minds that we have done something completely wrong. Conviction has to happen before conversion. You have to know that you're a sinner and you need Jesus. So their question indicates a few things. When they say, brothers, what should we do? It, it indicates that they are convicted. It indicates a realization that they've gone wrong. It, it indicates that they're guilty. It also indicates that they want to make restitution. They want to fix it. They want atonement. What, am I, what are we to do? What are we to do? They want to do something, which is exactly what the Jews had been taught for centuries. Kill a lamb, a bull, do sacrifice some sacrifice, take something to the temple or the tabernacle for your sins. So they wanted to do something. They wanted to pay penance, penance of some sort. They wanted to give some kind of payment, some kind of offering. That's, that's their mindset is what should we do? What can we do? Their hearts were begging for a way to amend their relationship with God now that they've realized they crucified the Messiah. Why are they having this reaction? 
I mean, Jesus preached the same type of stuff. Why are they having this reaction? Because the Holy Spirit has moved on their hearts and regenerated their hearts to hear it finally, to hear the words that Peter spoke, to really hear them and take to heart. God's used the Spirit to soften their hearts, their heart of stone. Their souls were stirred to seek a right relationship with God. Their souls were stirred to that. And this only comes when God gives us that new heart. It only comes when he decides and he has chosen to stir our hearts. So how do they establish that right relationship with God? That's kind of the real question. What do we do? Well, Peter gives them an answer. He prescribes these actions. These actions that he prescribes here, they're not in any particular order. They're not prioritized. This is just the way Peter presented them. But he says, repent first. Once you're convicted of a sin, one must turn from it. It's, it's really, I mean, you've, you've had met people that say they're sorry for something, but then they go on doing the same thing they've been doing. Repenting is turning away from that, turn, deciding, rejecting the sin habit, rejecting what you're doing wrong. You've got to do that. That's repentance. And that's the first act of a changed heart. Get it behind you and out from between you and God. That's the point of repentance. Because if we've if we got a sin in front of us, God's always behind us. We've turned our back on him. That's what sin is. So the next actions are not in any particular order. Like I said, this is just how Peter pre presented them. Baptism, he says, be baptized. Well, why would he put baptism there? We know it doesn't save. I got to establish that right up front. We're Baptists. We baptize, but it doesn't save. It doesn't save. But baptism in this culture right here, in this time period, would challenge them. It would challenge them to step out in front of everybody. And remember, this is a crowd of 3,000, but there's another crowd around that watching all this. They're going to step out and be baptized. Well, baptism is an immersion in water, and it was, a, it was a symbolic thing that the Jews did to wash away uncleanness, to wash away and become holy. The only reason you would get baptized is because you were considered unholy or unclean. So this would be almost an embarrassment for them. If they, if they weren't really believing and trusting in Christ, they really weren't needing and wanting their sins taken care of, it would have been an embarrassment for them. So it's a challenge to their confession and repentance. It's a public professing act of faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't save, no matter what others have said, and that's a whole other sermon. It's always, baptism is always an outward expression of an inward transformation. An outward expression of an inward transformation. I, you know, sometimes we do it up here. I wish we did it out on, on Main Street out there sometimes because the world needs to see that, that someone has changed their, life, their heart, that God has worked in their life. Again, that's another whole sermon. So God commands baptism, and he commands it to give us a chance to show off our salvation, to show off what Jesus has done for us. That's the whole point of baptism. It's a symbolic representation of what Jesus has, has done. You can do it in a lake, you can do it in a river, you can do it in a pond. I've seen them do it in cattle troughs in some churches because they don't have a baptistry. It doesn't matter what the water's in, that's just that you get in the water. So he says, be baptized. Publicly express your faith in Jesus Christ through that act. And then he says, the, he really gives them the key next to the whole point. The key is to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, what's in a name? We don't give as much credibility to names as the Jews did. 
Your name meant something. It always meant something. It always had some meaning and usually had some sort of spiritual meaning tied to it. <clears throat> the name of Jesus Christ, the name that you're going to be baptized in, the name that they had rejected, be baptized in that name. Admit that you killed the Messiah by being baptized in his name. I mean, that's what he's asking them to do. It's not just saying his name. It's not just, I can because a lot of people say Jesus, a, a lot of people say Jesus, and they have no desire to be saved. But Jesus' name carries the full measure of what he did. The full measure of his cross, the full measure of his blood, the full measure of his sacrifice for our sins. Yeah, not just, it's not just saying his name, it's, it's owning, in a sense, his name. His death, burial, and resurrection are captured in his name. Our memory verse this month, there is only one name under heaven by which we can be saved. That name is Jesus Christ. Then he says, for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, there's the whole point right there. That's what they're wanting to get to. But repent of your sins, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, admitting that you have sinned against God that way and showing that you're, you're expressing faith in Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sins will come. Forgiveness of all of them. Forgiveness of not what you've done in the past only. See, that's what the sacrifices in the temple and the tabernacle were all about. They were about your past sins. The high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year to cover everybody's past sins. Jesus covers all of our past, present, and future sins. Yes, amen. Amen. <clears throat> all of them. And Peter advises what will happen by faith in Jesus, that they will be forgiven, that Jesus is the atonement. He is the atonement, the payment. They don't have to do anything. They ask, what do we do? We don't have to, you don't have to do anything except just repent, stop sinning, turn to Jesus, be baptized in him. He has done all that needs to be done. And conversion is the result of that. Conversion is the result of God's power changing the soul. Regeneration produces conversion every time. Never fails. When, when God changes the heart, that heart will seek to have faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. That's how it happens. It never fails. It never fails. But that's not all, Peter says. On top of all of that, you don't get a set of Ginsu steak knives. You get the Holy Spirit. You get the Holy Spirit, the gift of God through Jesus to your heart, to your soul. And that's a symbol that the Holy Spirit's already working on you if you're to this point. You know that you need Jesus. You know that you sin. God even said these actions culminate in the regenerative actions of God on a heart. He gives us new hearts. Not, and he takes out our stony heart, our heart that's hard. All these actions culminate with the whole regeneration of your soul. God said, I will give them a new heart, one of flesh and not stone. That's, that's the promise Peter's mentioning next. Peter's mentioning that this was promised to you, all of Abraham's children and more. God told Abraham, you will be the father of many nations, not one nation, many nations, many peoples. That's what the promise is for. To other people that God will call. Peter is pointing right here at the end to the sovereign plan of God to save souls. And it's not just the Jews. 
And then Peter goes on, he keeps giving them encouraging words, he keeps telling them more truth, because his plea for them is the same plea that we have for people who don't trust Jesus Christ. Trust Jesus to be free from the corruption of a sinful nature, the sinful culture that's around you, to cleanse your soul for eternity. Trust Jesus to be free from that, free from that corruption. Your soul will be cleansed. You'll be forgiven for all eternity. So some of the crowd accepted this by faith. With open arms and open hearts, they said, yes, we will do this. And they were baptized. 3,000 of them. 3,000. And the, the apostles, the apostles baptized them right then and there. I've sat on some steps outside the, uh, the temple complex in Israel, in Jerusalem, and there's excavations in the ground below those steps. And there's, I, I counted at least 20 concrete swimming pools about six feet by three feet. I, I counted 20 of them, and they haven't unearthed them all. They didn't even get the dirt out of all of them. There's so many of them there. And, and that was a clear indication that this is how you baptize 3,000 people. You got about 25 or 30 or 40 baptismals. So people are baptizing like crazy and getting baptized. They're baptized to show the rest of the crowd that's just standing there watching that Jesus is the Messiah, and that by faith in him, your sins can be forgiven. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And the church grew 25 times its, normal, its regular size right then and there. How did that church grow 25 times its size? God imparted new spiritual hearts to these who believed in Jesus Christ, his son. I can't make this happen. You can't make this happen. God makes this happen. I don't know if those of you who are believers here, I don't know if you ever remember back when you were, before you were converted, before you actually made the decision and voiced it to somebody, what was going on in your mind and your heart? There's probably things like beginning to fall into place, things that were like, oh yeah, I now get that. Oh yeah, I now get this. Oh yeah, I know I need to be forgiven because I am a sinner. Those things were beginning to occur to you. That's regeneration going on right there. God's taking the little bit of knowledge that you've been given by either being in a church, a VBS, vacation Bible school, Sunday school, somewhere. You got a little bit, maybe your grandmother, your great aunt, somebody was telling you that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior, that you need to believe and trust in him. That's regeneration. It's just going on. He takes that little bit of knowledge and he expands it and changes your heart. Salvation has always been God's act first. It, he's always been in, in on it first. He said that he would change the hearts. The heart first. Then, he, then we can act on that. And I will give you a new heart in Ezekiel. Ezekiel the prophet, he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You know, he says that twice in the book of Ezekiel, almost verbatim. You think God's keeping his promise? I do. And he will keep his promise. Paul even expounds on it even more in Romans chapter 9 through Romans chapter 11. God must act on a soul to save it. It's all God. God gives new life. He imparts the spiritual life. So what does this mean for those of us who have believed? What does this mean for us? Well, it means we are so greatly blessed. 
that God has worked in our hearts and changed us and saved us and made us alive to his spirit and alive to the truth that we needed a savior. We are blessed. Our salvation, our true faith and repentance, our confession of sins, our trust in Christ's provision means God acted in us, him alone. And it's a good thing because I would have never done it on my own. Matter of fact, I got saved in college and I went there to get away from church. I'd been drugged to church my whole life. But I went there to get away from church and God drug me back. Not to church, but to the cross. Because I had never realized I needed to be saved. I never had accepted that fact that I was a sinner, that I was in a wrong relationship with God at that point. We should, we should, listen, we should never be so arrogant to think that we made a decision one day to follow Jesus. We don't need to be arrogant to think that it was all us or even part of us that God saved our souls. God worked it in you. God worked it in you. Our attitude should be one of humility and gratitude for what God's done for us. It's an amazing thing. He saved us by his power, not ours. It wasn't a conscious decision. It wasn't a self-help book. It was a cross-help book. It was God putting the cross of Jesus Christ on your heart. Someone preached to you Christ at some point, maybe told you about him, gave you a little bit of knowledge, and then God did the rest. He convicted you of sin. He changed your heart and renewed your soul. So when God calls a soul to be saved, he never gets a busy signal. Maybe you don't even know what a busy signal is. <laughs> It's an old-timey thing. He doesn't get a voicemail either. No. When God calls, our hearts hear, and our hearts will respond. By his grace, we are compelled to respond. Because by myself, I would never have res- responded. I would, have never, I would have never gone back to church or entertained the idea of it. So we need to never forget. We need to never take it for granted Or assume that your salvation was your accomplishment. Never assume that. Never think that. God gives us new life in Jesus Christ. He's the one that imparts it to us. So once God has done that, now let's look at what happens to our souls after they're saved by grace through faith. He calls us to serve. God uses our new life for good. 42 through 47, verse 42 through 47 They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all who had any need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house, They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So now we have conversion. God's changed them, and it leads to transformation. Your priorities change. Life's different. Life's different once you have accepted Christ. So, In the story here, we're going to fast forward a couple of days. I don't know how many, but it's obvious that from the time they had the the 3,000 get saved to get baptized, it looks like there's some time lapse in here to verse 42. And it says they devoted themselves, 
to the, the apostles' teaching and a bunch of other stuff, too. The church had grown by 2,500%. If, if you want a different number, 2,500% the church had grown. So what's next? What do you do with this new life? That's probably the question a lot of them. So all 3,120 church members devoted themselves. They attended. They followed. They gave full attention to four disciplines that, Peter, or that Luke records here. These are not in any particular priority. They need to all be done. You can't put one above the other. You need to do them all. But these are four disciplines of the Christian life, four disciplines of the spiritual life. First of all, the teaching of the apostles. See, they didn't have the New Testament. Then they only had the Old Testament. So the apostles were teaching them. They, the 12 kept, continued to teach what Jesus had taught them. You know, that's the essence of discipleship is teaching people what you know about Jesus. That's discipleship. It's not cosmic. You don't have to go to seminary to do it. Just teach them what you know. And that's what the 12 were doing here. They all had questions. The apostles had some answers. The apostles were probably digging through the Old Testament trying to find some answers to some of them. But they were all learning and being instructed. Their new hearts had a desire to know more. It should spur you on. They, they thirsted and hungered for righteous truth. They were looking for, for truth. And they were getting filled by it, by the teachings of the apostles. Their new faith found fresh truth to digest and process. I mean, this is a complete paradigm shift for them. No more sacrifices. No more coming to the temple for festivals three times a year. Is that what this means? They were getting a new way to live that was different. And the Holy Spirit was inside them. And trust, they were trusting him and they were learning. So then the second discipline that they, had, they were exercising is fellowshipping. Matter of fact, the Bible says the fellowship, meaning the church. They were getting together every day, all the time, sharing it together because new faith grows best in groups. You need people encouraging you. It's kind of why we do this every Sunday. And we also have Bible study afterwards to encourage one another. Our faith needs mutual support. We need each other. There's no Lone Ranger Christians. They, they don't survive very long or they get into such a world of hurt, they finally do get some help. But fellowship is more than a potluck, okay? <laughs> it's, I love potlucks, but it's not just a potluck. It's not just a gathering to eat. It's an environment. It's an environment where you feel comfortable enough to let down and tell people what's going on, what you're struggling with, what you don't understand. Believers can thrive, they can inquire, and they can find aid spiritually in real fellowship. The third discipline he, that's, that's given here is they worshiped. They worshiped in communion. When they, when they say breaking of bread, that's an idiom that, that kind of grew out of this. Breaking of bread means observing the Lord's Supper like we did last week. And it's an it's act of worship. And they did it after a meal, usually the evening meal. They would have a closing time together and they would observe the Lord's Supper because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And as often as you do it, you're proclaiming my death, burial, and resurrection. That's when they did it. We do it a little differently nowadays because of Paul's instructions in Corinthians. But it was a closing time for their, their day, in a sense, where they were focusing on their Savior, their Messiah. They worshiped. Worship always permeated Jewish gatherings. It was always an act of worship, true, sincere worship. They were always looking to, to promote Yahweh, their God. All their family times, all their gatherings. But now there was a new purpose or should I say a new person to worship? 
Jesus. And then the fourth thing they did is they prayed. Pray, pray, pray. Prayer was already a part of the Jewish life. I mean, they had prayers for when they got up. They had prayers when they went to bed. They had all kinds of rote prayers in a sense. But now it's becoming even more important because now they have a, a, a different thing to learn. They need, a, they need understanding. The apostles taught them what Jesus taught them about prayer. Wasn't anything new. Wasn't anything fancy. Here's what Jesus taught them. Be persistent in it. Be patient in it. Publicly pray together. Privately pray to the Lord. Make it an intimate prayer. God is now your father. You are a brother to Jesus. Pray intimately. Pray relationally. And pray continually. That's what Jesus taught them. Prayer is probably the most, no, it's not probably, it is the most important tool in our believer's toolbox. In any believer's life, if we're not praying, we're missing it. If we're doing things on our own ideas or we're making up our own way of doing things, we need to go talk to the creator of the universe who is now your father because you believe in Jesus Christ. And he's also now your friend. Our father who art in heaven, that that model prayer that Jesus gave us gives you a great outline of how to go about it. Prayer is important. And we need to do more of it. Like what they're doing at Asbury right now. So Bible study, studying the Bible yourself privately as well as in a fellowship, prayer, worship, and a fellowshipping, that's the four disciplines that, that uh, Luke recorded that they were doing. And the apostles were directing them to do this. They were doing it together, all of them. I'm, I'm sure the apostles wore out a couple of scrolls of the Old Testament trying to find answers. This all changes everything. And then Luke records in, in verse 43, he says, then there was an awe that kind of came over them. And I would, I would describe awe as a fear-based, reverent emotion. They were just blown away, as we would, might say today. They were just overwhelmed by how good God had been to save their souls. And it came on them, because they all were learning. The apostles had authority to heal and to help supernaturally. They had that authority, and they were doing it. And those actions, those signs and wonders that he mentions here, they were testimony to the, to the validity of their profession of faith and, and, the, and what Jesus had done. They showed that what Peter had told them in the sermon was coming true. It was a great time of building their faith. All these disciplines working together were building their faith more and more in Jesus Christ. And their new faith of life convicted them to see their possessions and their resources to help people. So in verse 44, they start, well, we, we got people that have needs. What are we going to do? Well, they begin to realize that God had given them these possessions for the help of others. It's a resource. So they began to use them together, to sell them, to gain money for necessities, mutually aided each other. They didn't sell themselves into abject poverty. It doesn't say that here. So don't go home and say, well, the pastor's telling us to sell everything. Nope, I'm not saying that at all. They sold possessions to earn money, to get money, to help others. And they begin to use them together. And this type of sharing was necessary because now you've got a, a crowd of 3,120 that some of them are from out of town, remember? They're, they're there, and they probably weren't going to stay this long. But now they, they, they want to stay. They just don't have any resources. 
They've probably exhausted all their travel funds. So the church is taking care of them because they're part of the church. It was just kind of a one-time event here, okay? So it's not saying that that happens everywhere and needs to happen everywhere, but we can learn something from this. This image can help us to understand some things about our own property, to hold it with loose hands, to not be so tight-gripped on our, our material blessings as a means to serve. No, you don't need to starve yourself, and you don't need to, to live in a cardboard box, but God has told us to probably release some things, and as we, we as Americans, we, we have a lot more stuff than we, we need, but that's another whole sermon too. It's a mindset change that God has planted in them. He's growing it in them, and he grows it in us if we'll listen. And so every day, every day they gathered in the temple. Every day. Y'all want to gather here every day? That'd be great, right? They gathered in the temple because that was the only place big enough for 3,120 people. They had to gather somewhere, at least once, and they were encouraging each other by being there together. They worshiped together as a whole church every day. They went to the temple courts there and worshiped the Lord. Now, I'm not a fan of divided service, and I like this idea that, hey, no matter how big you are, just get together once a week at least. It enhanced their fellowship. It enhanced their faith. It grew them. Which then they had to enjoy more intimate fellowship house to house. They went to each other's houses, probably mixed it up a little bit, whoever had the houses. They went to other houses and kind of spread it out, mixed it up every week, had meals together. And then at the end in the house, they had the Lord's Supper. That's the breaking of the bread again. They had to do that because there was no place to feed all 3,120. They would provide things like food, shelter, clothing. Maybe they would provide help in taxes because the Romans were pretty excessive with that. Maybe they provided them with medical help of some sort. They didn't have quite the medical uh, establishments we have today but there were still doctors some people may have needed medical attention benevolence is what that's called helping people in need we do that right here we have a fund for that you're free to give to that anytime because we always are in need of it but the church was vividly and tightly knitted together by their faith in jesus and their love for god's salvation their generous spirit their generous spirit and their and their positive helpful reputation convinced others to show them favor convinced others and intrigued others see the romans had created such a selfish culture because you're always trying to protect yourself from the romans taking it with taxes and other stuff feels sort of like illinois sometimes but they needed they they were always selfish but this was a different group of people they were generous they were helping and it attracted and it pleased most people. And, and Pentecost was a different celebration that year than it had ever been. Pentecost is always about the first harvest of barley. But this was different. People's needs were being met. And every day, more people profess faith in Jesus Christ. Professed their faith. Repented of their sins. Baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And came with the Holy Spirit. And they did this every day, showing the world that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus changes them. God was increasing their faith, growing their numbers, and preparing their souls to expand the church, which we will see in a few chapters. God saved them to use them. He's using them in Jerusalem right now. 
But pretty soon it'll be Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. God saved them to use them, to complete the Great Commission. And some of these will go back to the edges of the earth from where they were from. When I showed you the map a few weeks ago, they were from all over the edges of the earth at that known time. They will go back home carrying this message that Jesus is the Messiah. Like the revival going on at Asbury right now in, in Kentucky. You know, why is that going on? Because they want to serve by God's direction. They want to know God's will for the life. And they want to own the fact that they may need to repent of things that they've not repented of. They've not owned their sins. They want to serve God. I hope we do. I hope we're seeking for him to do this. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, I'm going to be reading a couple of passages. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 29, and then Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. These are familiar passages, but these passages indicate how God saves us and then how God plans to use us. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, here's what Paul writes. You know this first one really well. We know in all things to work, that work, all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. God saves you to transform you. That's why he does it. That's what he, Paul's saying right there. And those of us who are called according to the purpose of God, he works everything out in our lives for the good, his good, the best. And then Ephesians 2, 8, 9, pretty, 2, 2 8 through 10 actually, 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved through faith. This not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for works of service, which he prepared in advance for us to do. When you get saved, God's got a blueprint for your life. He's got a plan for you to obey and do. That's what he's got. That's all together. We usually forget that last verse, but we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, for good deeds, for actions, which he prepared in advance for us to do. God's got a plan to use you. And church, I have to say it. Beloved, I have to say this. God calls you to faith, and then he calls you to work. He calls us to faith and then to work, to get busy. He saves you to offer you abundant life. It's a life of service to the greatest master ever existed. I mean, what better master to work for than Jesus Christ? What a loving, forgiving, compassionate master we have. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He gives us very purposeful work to do that has eternal value to it. When we apply the four disciplines that I talked about earlier, when we apply those, we can see all kinds of things. And our, our faith walk is not a spectator sport, okay? You're not supposed to just get saved and sit in the pews or bleachers. It's not a spectator sport. We're on the field. We're in the trenches. And we're out facing giants, spiritual giants. So are you the, the cowering player sitting on the bench on the sideline? You hadn't gotten engaged? You're not on the field involved you can be on the field are you the, the the 
petrified soldier hiding in a corner of the trench, just clutching your gun, waiting for the inevitable to happen, you think? Are you unwilling to confront the enemy? God calls the church. He has made the church the organization that he wants to use to not only take his gospel around the world, but to help everybody in your local community as well as around the world. All of those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life are called to participate. By the way, there's no age limit on it, okay? There's no age limit on it. Some of the things that keep us from doing that, let's think about this a little bit. Some of the things that keep us from doing this. Fear of death. Sometimes we have a fear of death. That should never hold us back. Death is never a period for a Christian. It's a comma. Death is never the end. It's only the beginning of eternity. So we should never be afraid of death going to some foreign country and taking the gospel there. People are facing that persecution every day because they're not afraid of death because their soul is safe with Jesus. How about the fear of failure? The fear of failure should never cause you to be timid or to, or to be sitting on the sidelines. God will forgive your mistakes, and we will make them. I've made plenty. We will make them. God will forgive your mistakes. And then again, like Romans 8, 28 says, he will use them for his glory. I don't always know how, and I don't want to go out there and make mistakes on purpose just hoping God will bail me out of things, but he does. I've seen it in my life and others. How about the fear of pain or the fear of loss or the fear of discomfort? Ooh, it's uncomfortable to talk about Jesus. It's uncomfortable to talk about religion. But we're not talking about religion. We're talking about Jesus. The fear of embarrassment, the fear of awkwardness. Oh, man, so many times we're afraid to be awkward by mentioning Jesus. Are we afraid? Or maybe we're shy. We're just afraid of being, we're just too shy. Well, those are never, ever efficient, sufficient excuses to not get involved, to not participate. God makes every believer a disciple. You may not realize that, but God doesn't call us to be Christians. You realize Christian is only used twice in the whole Bible. One time it's used as a derogatory term about the people who believe in Jesus. But disciple shows up 280 plus times. God makes every believer a disciple of his son. That's what he calls us to do. Now, either you are an active disciple or you're an inactive disciple. And let me tell you, inactive disciples usually become very miserable because God doesn't want inactive disciples. Now, some of you may just realize that you, you are a disciple of Christ. That's the calling on you. But let me tell you, being inactive will make you miserable. I've been there. It's not, it's not a fun place to be. But God saved you to be an active disciple, someone who's engaged in God's word, who's praying, who's fellowshipping, who's worshiping, and who's taking the gospel to wherever they can go and take it. God saved you to be that active disciple who takes up his cross and follows Jesus selflessly. It's what he's called us to do. He saved us for that purpose. And when we go, we bring love, like this group here, love and understanding and compassion, and we also bring a Savior, a Savior. See, we have more than just material felt needs. We have a Savior who, fit, who fills the eternal needs. The world can find help for their soul in Jesus and Jesus alone. 
And Jesus taught us. He said, store up treasures in heaven. Do things that have eternal value for your reward in heaven will be great. Did you not believe that? Did you not believe that? He did, and he meant it. So we need to find ways to help and support and engage the lost and dying world that's around us because it's, it's out there. You have been given eternal life in Christ, and he expects us to use that eternal life for his glory and his kingdom. So let me summarize a little bit this morning what I've been saying. Pentecost concluded with a massive awakening. 3,000 people get saved, and then more start adding on to it. And then the church begins to grow steadily and begins to minister steadily in that big city of Jerusalem. But here's the last thoughts for you before we pray. There was a missionary on three continents in the late 19th century, early 20th century. His name was C.T. Studd. And he had, some, he had some good sayings. But one of his sayings is really important for us to kind of keep in mind. He said, some people want to live within the sound of chapel bells, church bells. He says, but I want to set up a mission one yard from the gates of hell. That was his mindset. He was a missionary on three different continents over the course of his life. Are you ready to fight and serve like that? If you're a believer in Christ, you're, you're called to begin looking for that in one way or the other. Your salvation has called you to that kind of attitude, to run a mission a yard from the gates of hell. Remember Jesus said the gates of hell, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church? Who attacks anybody with gates? That means we're attacking. The gates of hell will not be able to stand against us. There are needs and there are fights to be part of right now. I'll just give you a couple of examples as I wrap this up. Pandu Mandala in India, he needs $15,000 to hold an evangelistic crusade in March. I mean, he needs that money to hold a crusade. And, and at this point, I think the count is somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of 250 to 300,000 people that have gotten saved over his ministry the last five years. I mean, I, I met him right after I came here about five years ago. And over that time, almost 300,000 people have probably gotten converted. And churches planted all over India. India is right now one of the most hostile places for Christians, and he's planting churches. I get a video about every two or three weeks of him cutting a ribbon, opening a little building to, for a new church. $15,000 too much? Well, he needs Bibles. For every $3, he can give someone a full Bible in their language. We can send that money directly to him. He needs Bibles. After the, the crusade he had a few weeks ago, 40,000 people got saved. So, The International Mission Board that we support, they need money for help in Turkey and Syria where the earthquake happened. They're beginning to actually get to send some people in there, praise God, but they need money and, and finances for that. There's many churches right here in our area that need pastors. Pray about it. You may not be the one to go, but I can, I can go on all day listing the things that God's got going on around us. But I want us to take this time to, to pray about our hearts, to pray, what does God want us to do? How can I join the battle? And pray that you can have the faith and the strength to do that. So we're going to take a time of pastoral prayer. If you want to come to the front and pray, feel free to do that. We'll have a time of silent prayer, and then I'll close us out after a minute or so. Let's pray.